Um, listening is a skill uh, that all of us need improvement on. Most of your women are going, yep. And they're not talking about themselves, man. They're talking about you. I heard some say amen. And all the amens, I think, came from women. I wasn't sure. So, uh, I ran across a story this week about a, uh, a stadium announcer for a, a soccer stadium in Ireland. Uh, during a game, uh, the announcer had to announce to the crowd uh, the license plate number of a car that was blocking the exit to one of the parking lot, and people couldn't get in or out. Uh, the announcer became extremely frustrated uh, after announcing over and over and over for the owner of the vehicle to move the car so that people could get out of the parking lot. And for 30 minutes, the announcer over and over and over would call out, these numbers over the stadium loudspeaker, asking for the owner to please come remove your car. And without any result, nobody came. And then the realization came, finally, the numbers that he had been calling out over and over dawned on him that he was the owner of the car that needed to be moved. (laughs) Some of you are laughing. At yourself is what you're doing. Uh, The announcer learned the hard way uh, that it's entirely possible to hear all the information that we need, clearly stated and accurate, but simply hearing the information is not enough if it does not penetrate and take root and result in action. The church... Here at Thyatira is an example of failing to listen. And to be sure, to be sure the stakes are much higher than a car blocking a parking lot entrance. This is a church that is not listening. So Jesus comes and He speaks to this church. And you know by now, hopefully... If you've forgotten, these churches, these letters are written to were real historical churches. They existed. He wrote to them for a specific purpose. But these letters are for all seven of those churches and for the church throughout the history of the world. So let me ask you, Red Bud Baptist Church, who's this letter to? It's to us today. If you're looking at your handout, you see the main idea there. It's the danger of tolerating the refusal to repent. The danger of tolerating the refusal to repent. And uh, looking at your hand out here, I want to make sure, yes, I do have this there. A danger. There are consequences when you stop listening to the warnings of Jesus. Jesus judges the tolerate, tolerating of false teaching and immorality, but... He gives reward to those who hold fast to the truth. And that's what we're going to see. So verse 18, let's let's start here. Jesus says, I am the searching one. Verse 18, I am the searching one. Thyatira is a church that is not listening. So Jesus comes and He speaks to the believers in this church. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God. Listen to how Jesus is described here, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. As with the 
previous three letters we've looked at, John is told again to write to the angel of the church. He's told to write to this uh, angel, which is a messenger, and he's the representative of this particular church. And the messenger was to take Jesus' words to the church. To this church, he's to take these words. Jesus here has a title. Notice how, how he refers to himself as the Son of God. This is the only time in the book of Revelation where we see this title. We see it in other places, but in Revelation, this is the only time we see this title. The title emphasizes the holiness of Jesus. Son of God. Holy. It emphasizes his, if you will, transcendence. It emphasizes his deity. Thus, there's an emphasis here on judgment. Verse 18 says, how do we know that? Look at verse 18 again. It says, he has eyes like a flame of fire. We saw that in chapter 1, did we not? Remember how when Jesus, uh, when John writes a letter to each of these churches, there's a description of Jesus given to each one of them, and we find that description where? Chapter 1, the vision that John saw. John had a vision of the glorified, resurrected Jesus. The idea is that Jesus, uh, it's the idea of Him being able to see, this eyes like a flame of fire, He can see, He can he can penetrate. He's able to see into the most distant and dark places. That's what this uh, figurative language here is pointing to. Jesus can see into all places. Jesus sees with a penetrating insight and, and a perfect justice. He, he sees all actions, thoughts, and emotions. Man, that's, that's worrisome, is it not? Nothing escapes the vision of Jesus. That's what this uh, language is pointing us to. He saw what was happening in the church at Thyatira. He knew clearly what the church was doing. Verse 18, His feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, that word burnished uh, means gleaming or polished. Bronze speaks of strength and judgment. I think there's a particular reason here why this description is given to this church because in Thyatira, they were a, a, a city, and we'll talk about that here in a minute, but they were a city well known for manufacturing, anybody want to guess? Bronze. He has feet like burnished bronze. It speaks, speaks of strength and, and judgment. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, we read that when Jesus comes again, He comes with feet that will tread the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of God. The description of Jesus here is a picture of devastating judgment. This is a letter, listen, this is a letter that no church wants to get. You mark return to sender if you knew that's what was in there. You're going to send that back, but which is not a good thing to do. Jesus saw what was happening in Thyatira. He knew clearly what the church was doing. Jesus says, I, I'm the searching one. I, I know all things. So that's how Jesus describes himself in this letter to this church of Thyatira. Then in verses 19 and 20, Jesus commends, but yet he condemns this church. Kind of a pattern there, right? Jesus points out, here's what you're doing good, but... As we go through here, we're going to see that again. Jesus commends the church for good things. He says, I know your works of love and faith. Love and faith express the motivation for their uh, work for Jesus. You have a love and you have this faith to do the work 
of God. They had a love for Jesus and for others, and they had they had faith in God. And both of these moved the church to action. Love and faith moves people to action, by the way. And Jesus commended them for that. Acts of love are self-evident. And through these acts of love, these Christians were showing their great faith in the Son of God. Unlike the church at Ephesus, right? Who had what? Left their first love? The church at Thyatira's love for Jesus had not grown cold. That's a good thing, right? This is yes. That's a good thing. Jesus is commending them. Second, in verse 19, Jesus knew their works of service and patient endurance. These things flow naturally out of love and faith. Service and patient endurance. There was a certain loyalty in this church, a certain dependability. The, the Christians there at Thyatira were characterized by service. And this Greek word, the Greek word for service here is the word diakonia, deacon acts. It is the voluntary meeting of needs. Notice how they did these voluntary meeting and these, these deacon acts. They were done with what? Patient endurance. Those are probably two words that we... Patience and endurance, right? In our fast-paced, Google it, find it, move on. Patience and endurance are two words we've lost. They served with patient endurance. One commentator says... Referring to this, a person with a servant's heart is one with long-suffering and steadfastness who will give himself deliberately, voluntarily, sacrificially, and joyfully to others in order that he may help meet their needs. He will walk away from his own concerns and private interests and give himself his time, his wisdom, his knowledge, his talents, and gifts in order to help others. The qualities of the person with a genuine servant spirit will exhibit a spirit of humility. He's willing to stoop to serve another, but never asking for recognition. He does all that. He never wants anybody to know that he's done that. And they were doing these things. That's good, right? Man, these things, these are great. If you're at this church, you're thinking, man, this is... Yes. They were doing these things. And it's interesting, looking at verse 19 again, they were doing these things at a higher level than they had ever done them before. I know your work, verse 19. And then he explains those things. Then notice what he says. Your latter works exceed the first. The church was growing and their deeds were growing as well. There was life there. There were good things going on there. And they were what? Growing. Those things were growing. They were exceeding. Make a point of application here. You know, I wonder, and I apply this to myself as well, I wonder if that could be said of you individual Christian or uh, of the church as a whole. Do our latter works exceed the first? Or are our best days in the past? Are you Christian? Are you stagnant? Or are you building your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance? Are you working to build those things? And by God's grace, are you seeking those things to grow in your life? Or have you settled into a comfortable way of life? Or even slipped back some and reduced your zeal for Jesus and your devotion to His mission? Those are questions we need to ask ourselves and search ourselves as Christians. 
you know, it's important to, to recognize, again, making application here, that Jesus knows and He acknowledges the good in each of these churches, right? Up to this point, Jesus always points out the good things. The good things that may be happening. Even when He's going to address some serious problems, He does that. Sometimes uh, when we go to address problems, even the ones that are not so serious, we fail to see and acknowledge the good things that may be happening, right? Parents, this would make good application for you and your children. They're always pointing out what they do wrong. Pointing out the good things you see them doing. Husbands and spouses, that would be a good practice for us as well. We should work at seeing and commending the fruits of the Spirit we see in each other's lives. Even if we do have serious things we need to go on to address, just as Jesus does. (coughs) Now, I was thinking this week, if we stop right here, if this letter ends, what would you think? All's good, right? The church can do this, pat itself on the back and think, man, we're doing good. We are okay, right? Would that be acceptable to do that, this letter stop there? Yeah. Verse 20. But, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. But I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jezebel, I remember as a kid, you know, you, you've been in conversation with somebody, you ever heard somebody say, she's just an old Jezebel. I didn't know what that was, but I knew it wasn't good. Right? Jezebel, if you'll remember, was the queen of the northern kingdom of Israel. She was married to King Ahab. And you read about her in 1 Kings chapter 16 and 21. She was well known for causing Israel to worship pagan gods and to indulge in sexual perversions that were part of the cults of Baal and Ashtaroth. That's what Jezebel did. That, that's, that's putting it lightly as, as to who, who Jezebel was and what she did. And by the way, if you want to read about Jezebel, um, how, she, how her life ends, it's pretty gruesome as to how her life comes to an end. I'll let you read that. Like Jezebel, the Old Testament, it seems that the church in Thyatira has a woman claiming to be a prophetess. And it's interesting that she was seducing the servants of Jesus. And she, she's, she's doing so by seducing those who, who belong to Jesus. She, she's teaching <clears throat> the exact things that we saw in the letters of the church of Ephesus and Pergamum are among which they were among the followers of Baal and the Nicolaitans, which they did what? Taught and practiced food offered to idols, and sexual immorality. As a city, let me give you some background about Thyatira and how this kind of fits into Jezebel, how she was seducing the servants. She was teaching them badly. As a city, 
Thyatira uh, was home to a lot of uh, what we would call local industries, okay? Businesses, all right? They had bakers and painters and tanners and potters and coppersmiths. <clears throat> and along with all those different trades, you have what they had were called trade guilds, G-U-I-L-D-S. And the purpose of a guild was to support those industries, all right? To belong to one of these particular trade guilds also meant belonging to the appropriate union associated with that trade, okay? So if you're a coppersmith, you belong to a guild, and there was a, uh, a, a union associated with that. Compare that to a modern-day labor union. That's, that's pretty much what it was. So what's the big deal? Well, a Christian baker didn't bake, and a Christian painter didn't paint, and a Christian shoemaker didn't make shoes unless they were a part of one of those guilds or one of those unions. You just didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to be a, a coppersmith, and here's how I'm going to do it. Now, you had to belong to the guild. You had to belong to the union in order to do that. But belonging to one of these unions oftentimes required participating in these pagan feasts in which they offered food that had been sacrificed to idols. And they held those feasts in these various temples. Remember, they had a lot of temples that were dedicated to gods. And within those temples, there was prostitution going on. Okay? So if you're one of these trades, you've got to be a part of the union. And they held their, if you will, they held their annual meeting. And here's what went on. So whenever a Christian refused to participate in these feasts, because doing so would what? Compromise their faith, right? They faced persecution from the culture. And it had economic consequences, right? If you don't make shoes, what? You don't eat. And they would lose their jobs and they wouldn't have any income. So here, Jezebel would come along. She taught that there was nothing wrong with a Christian taking part in these feasts and these celebrations. Doing so was just being sociable. Jezebel said it's okay, listen to me, Jezebel said it's okay to compartmentalize your sacred and your secular worlds. You can separate those two. You can compartmentalize them. The Bible says no, all of life falls under the gospel, right? We don't compartmentalize anything. Here's what I'd say. There are going to be times when you have, you'll have to Compromise your convictions. That's what Jezebel was saying. She said, there's going to be times when you, get, you just got to compromise. It's not going to hurt anything. Listen, Jesus understands. Jesus never wanted following Him to be difficult. And besides that, you're free in Christ. That sounds kind of crazy, right? But there's a lot of... Our culture presents that idea. A lot of Christians will present that idea that Jesus doesn't want following Him to be difficult. And besides that, you're free to do those things. I just have one question. What does Jesus have to say about that? If someone ever says that to you, that would be how I'd respond. What does Jesus think about that? I have this against you. 
See, it's not what you and I think. It's what does God's Word say and what does Jesus think. It's not our traditions or how we've always done things. It's what does God's Word say? What does Jesus say? What does Jesus think about this? See, sexual immorality and acts of idolatry in any culture are a big deal to God. God calls us to holiness, not harlotry. Being a follower of Jesus is a call to purity, not spiritual prostitution. Following Jesus is a call to spiritual faithfulness, not spiritual adultery. Being a Christian is a call to follow Jesus and not follow the world. Here's what, I want, here's what I want to say to myself and to you. Anything or anyone that gets our eyes off Jesus is not of God. Anything or anyone that minimizes or adds to the gospel is not of God. Anything or anyone that compromises biblical truth is not of God. Notice there in verse 20, this woman calls herself a prophet. She was a self-proclaimed leader. And Jesus says someone in the church should have stepped up and dealt with her. But no one did. Fear paralyzed the the church from dealing with her. No one wanted to say no. They did not want to deal with the messy stuff. They didn't want to, um, you know, man, I'm kind of comfortable. They didn't want to be uncomfortable. Courage and conviction was something they didn't have. And Jesus says that there's a problem. He's saying something against this church. They tolerated this person. Notice what Jesus says. He says, He gave her time to repent, but she what? Refuses. Those who belong to Jesus repent of sin. That ain't me. That's what the Bible says. Those who belong to Jesus repent of sin. The refusal to repent of sin identifies someone as an unbeliever. This seems to indicate that Jezebel had been called to what? Repent. But she's what? You, you don't refuse something unless somebody presents it to you. She had been called to repent, but she, she refuses. She'd been called to repent, which possibly tells us that what we see in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, restorative church discipline had been applied to this person. But she did not what? Repent. Even though she was, listen, don't miss this, even though she was given time to do so, the mercy of Jesus is here. Some of us are thinking, no, but it's here. He gives time, what? To to Repent. Jesus always gives His children time to repent. Think about when you got saved. Before you became a Christian. Think about when you get, got, before you got saved. How long suffering was Jesus with you? I was talking with some guys yesterday at a conference and we were talking about, you know, lostness and the church being on mission and, you know, just... And we, were, we were thinking about our own selves. How many times did I hear the gospel before God ever moved my heart to repent, trust in Him? 
I can't even begin to count how many times I'd heard the gospel. What if Jesus said, one time's enough and cut me? Man, he was, he, he was merciful to me. Time and time and time again I heard the gospel. So Jesus is now holding this church in Thyatira responsible. You're responsible, church. You're tolerating. The church has not obeyed the Bible. But you say, but they did all these other good things. Did Jesus commend them for that? Sure, but He says, I have this against you. When churches fail to deal with unrepentant sin, they bear the responsibility. Jesus takes issue with that. Let's make some application here. How do you respond when you're confronted with your sin? Some of us are like, it ain't none of your business. That's what we want to say. Does it make you angry? Or does, it, or does it make you humble and more grateful that Jesus has died to pay the penalty for your sin? Does it make you more zealous to turn away from sin in the future? Or does it make you feel like you need to be more careful not to be caught in the future? That's what most of us do, right? We want to be careful not to get caught in the future. But being confronted with our sin should make us more zealous to turn from sin in the future. Let me say this before we move on. If you're here today and you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, I want to point out something to you once again. Notice the words, I gave her time to repent. Jesus is merciful. But there comes a time when the mercy is gone. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, Jesus has given you time to repent. But that mercy may end on any given day. Verses 22 through 25, Jesus says, I will intervene. If you continue to look the other way, look verses <coughs> excuse me, 22 and 23, Behold, what does that word mean? Pay attention. This is big. Don't miss this. I will throw her onto a sick bed. Sick bed may refer to actual disease and illness. That makes sense, right? Sick bed, I'll throw her onto a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Jesus is saying, judgment's about to fall on Jezebel but also on those who commit adultery with her, unless they repent of her works. Great tribulation, distress or trouble will be theirs unless they what? Repent. You notice that's the third time the word repent shows up. Notice verse 23, I will strike her children dead. Now, some of you are going, whoa, well, that's just more than I can handle. Well, her children there speak of her spiritual children, not biological children. Those who share her nature, her character, all who follow her example, all in every age who fall into that kind of life. Most likely, John sees Jezebel and her children here as being unsaved or lost. Those words strike dead means to turn them over to the destruction and death that they are pursuing and which they deserve. 
In other words, they're, they're sending away their opportunity of grace and hope. They're sending that away. You, you, may, be, you, you may be saying, this, this sounds so harsh. And I'm sure Joel would say, this can't be the Jesus that I know. This sounds so harsh. But what does verse 21 say? I gave her time to repent. God's a God of wrath and a God of love all at the same time. Jesus is announcing judgment. He's stating that all those who sin with Jezebel, verse 21, will be judged unless they repent. Those who belong to Jesus will repent. Those who don't belong to Jesus will not repent. Those who refuse to repent identify themselves with Jezebel rather than with being a follower of Jesus. Jesus is saying this. This is not what I'm saying. Why would Jesus say that? Verse 23, So that all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. All the churches will know, Jesus says, They will know my reaction to the tolerance of sin. This is a warning to churches moving in that direction, but there's still grace and mercy unless they repent of her works. We talk about revival in our country, right? Can I tell you something? The revival needs to take place in the church. We need to quit praying for revival in our country and pray for it in our personal lives, in the life of our churches. What would revival in the church look like? I heard a guy say one time, the church wants revival until it comes. What would it look like? Well, the church would get get very serious about holiness and very serious about dealing with sin. It would, it would include a love for Christ, a love for His church. Revival happens when the church returns to its first love for Jesus, when it stops compromising with the world, and when it stops tolerating sin. That's the three things He's pointed out so far. Ephesus left their first love. Pergamon was compromising with the world. And Thyatira was tolerating. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold these teachings, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, um, the deep things of Satan there is the idea that God's indifferent to your sin. God, uh, He tolerates you in your sin. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Listen, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Jesus says, but for you who don't buy into the deep things of Satan, I don't place no other burden on you. I'm asking nothing more of you except verse 25. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Continue to be faithful And what you have, which is the truth, hold fast to that until I come. You don't have a burden outside of having to go on resisting this teaching. Be faithful. 
That's what I want for my church. All I ask of you is hold fast. Don't give in. It won't be easy. But fix your eyes on the day when I return. Hold fast. Here's what holding fast means as a means of application. It means living out the gospel. That's what that means. Holding fast. Living out the gospel. And part of living out the gospel is drawing a line between those who believe the gospel and repent of their sins and those who by refusing to repent of their sins show that they do not believe the gospel. And here's some application for you. Stand up and be bold for Jesus in your home, in your business, in your school, and at other places. But listen carefully. You be wise, and you be winsome, and you be kind. But don't back down and don't retreat. Remember what this church was doing? Make progress. Add to your faith. Let the latter works exceed the first. See, we can be bold, people. We can hold to the truth. But we can do that in the right way. We can be kind and winsome and gracious to people. We need to, have, we need to pray to God for courage and conviction and at the same time for a humble, gracious spirit. Can I tell you something? You can't develop those things and put them together on your own. It takes the grace of God to give you those things. 26 through 29. Jesus says there are rewards for holding fast. Here's what Jesus is saying. In order to rule with me in the future, you have to be faithful now. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. In other words, those who demonstrate true saving faith. We talked about this. The overcomer is the one that we read about in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. It says the one who overcomes is the one who has faith in Christ. And the evidence of true faith in Christ is holding fast, obedience, good works till the end. So if you demonstrate the genuineness of your salvation... And you're not just a professor of salvation, living an ungodly, immoral life. Verses 26 and 27. To Him will I give authority over the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Man, what an amazing statement. But you're going, well, what does it mean? I'm going to summarize this. There is a ton here, alright? But I'm going to summarize this. The one who conquers, and what he says in verses 26 and 27, means this. You will reign with Jesus. Verses 26 and 27 come from Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. And those verses reflect the authority God the Father gave to Jesus the Son. Jesus promises those who conquer that they will rule with Him. If we want to rule with Jesus in the future, we have to be faithful to Him now. And one of the ways we do that is not tolerating sin. Verse 28. And I will give Him the morning star. Another good question, right? What's that? If I'm going to get it, I want to know what it is. Can I tell you, if the Bible didn't tell us it's coming from God, it's going to be good, whatever it is. 
But we find the answer to that in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright and morning star. What does it mean? I'll give you the morning star. It means this. I'll give you Jesus. If you're among the faithful, I will give you the kingdom. I will give you the king. In other words, all that God has, the kingdom and the king, you get that. Verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? Are you listening? If you are listening, what do you hear in this letter? You heard about a church that had activity, that was growing, greater things were going on, a church that was marked by love and faith and a measure of endurance, but a church that had invited the world in. It was a church full of sin and doing nothing to remove it. This is a church that is under judgment. Verse 22, Jesus says, I may need to come and break, bring great tribulation in order to send a message about righteousness, holiness, and sin. If you're listening, do you have the seriousness of tolerating sin in the church? If you're listening... Evidence of being a true believer is not giving in to immorality, but holding fast. If you're listening, for those who are true believers, holding fast, the promise of God is the kingdom and the king will be yours. That's the message to the church. Our prayer should be that we would ask God, If our love for Jesus is like the Ephesian church and like the Pergamon church, are we compromising with the world? And like Thyatira, what is our attitude towards sin? And are we tolerating? That will be a prayer we pray to God and ask Him. Let's pray.